A climate summit was held this last summer that was sponsored by the two founders of Google and attended by a number of A-list celebrities and billionaires. Well, Rex Murphy, really the Don Cherry of Canadian journalism, no? Had something to write about this climate summit in the National Post. Here's what he said. The hypocrisy of politicians is as a bead of sand, a pimple in the shadow of Everest, compared to the hollow, fake piety of the mega-rich and famous gospelers of global warming. How did this coven of Illuminati get to Sicily? Did they walk and row, come by Greyhound, hitchhike? No, official count of the private jets wafting into Palermo Airport for the great consult stands at 114. This for a maximum 300 people attending. Three persons per jet. But not not all came from the carbon-rich sky. Some came by personal superyacht. He writes later, superyachts are vultures, gluttonous for fossil fuels. They can be rivaled only by the excesses of private jets flying thousands of miles to hold meetings to persuade the poor of the world to cut down on the consumption of fossil fuels. Later, he writes about some of the things they could do um, in their free time at the summit. One of the things was for a little sightseeing, they could drive high fuel $200,000 Maseratis that were available there in excess. And then he concludes the article, to their credit, there were no plastic straws. (laughs) Oh, the hypocrisy of celebrity, right? Anybody been watching the news this last week? Look, what I'm about to say has no political agenda at all. I'm, I'm not that kind of preacher. I I don't have a political agenda. I'm just going to speak to the news for a sec. That's all I'm doing, really. Our prime minister has been in hot water. He is uh, the self-proclaimed most progressive prime minister Canada has ever had. But in recent months, he's damaged that platform severely through his treatment of Jody Wilson-Raybould. And now these blackface or brown faces, they've been calling them photos, have surfaced. Projecting to be a person of progress in categories of feminism and race and equality has shown by some of his living not to match his own standard. And people are looking and saying, oh, the political hypocrisy. But as much as you might shake your head in disgust or even revel in the backlash on these celebrities and politicians you don't necessarily or maybe support, it's the hypocrisy, though, of the religious that is most off-putting to people. So much so that people today are not really asking, is Christianity true? 
They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? Now, our sermon series this fall is called Doubt, and the question underneath the hypocrisy doubt is this. How can Christianity be true when Christians are hypocrites? That's, that's the question this morning. So just so we're clear on terms, we actually stated it in the confession earlier. Here's what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is a person who claims belief that his or her actions don't conform to. So when people look in at Christians and Christianity, they'll say their faith, that person's faith says they shouldn't gossip, and yet they're the biggest gossip that I know. Their faith tells them that they're not supposed to get drunk, and yet there they are, they party and get drunk every weekend and sober up just in time to go to church and sometimes even seem a little hungover. Don't they preach chastity or reserve sex only for marriage? And yet there they are, sleeping around and cheating on their spouse. Hypocrisy is those who preach the cause but act its opposite. Years ago, before I was the lead pastor and stopped being a hypocrite altogether, um, (laughs) I was at a, a cell phone provider kiosk in the mall. And, uh, you know, right in the middle of the big hallway, the kiosks that pop up in the middle, and I was there because they had announced the release of a new iPhone. I think it was like the 3S. I don't know. It was like years ago. Just brilliant new phone. And I really wanted one. And, you know, my, my term on my own phone was coming up, and it was an opportunity for a new phone. I'm a sucker for gadgets more than I should be. And I was like, I want that. And so I went there and asked, how do I get it? And they said, well, we're doing a waiting list and you're, if, if we put you down, you'll be second on the list and we know we're gonna get at least a half dozen of these in a couple days. And so I said, okay, great. So I wrote my name down. Those couple days passed, I didn't hear anything. So the next day I go to the cell phone provider kiosk, they will remain nameless. I'm with a different provider now. Because when I arrived there, I said, hey, I haven't heard anything, but I was second on the waiting list for the phone. And they said, I'm sorry, the demand was so high, we just did first come, first serve. Yeah. And so I, how do I put this Christianly? Lost my marbles in that moment. Well, what's the point of the waiting list? I was on the list. Now you're not doing the list. You didn't tell me, you didn't call me. I couldn't, I would have come here and I berated the poor Rogers employee. Um, <laughs> Like, in the, like at the mall kiosk, like the most public mall place. And I was a pastor. I probably preached in some measure, love your neighbors earlier that week, or live compellingly as Christian witness, you know? And there I was. Oh, the hypocrisy. So what do we say about this doubt? How should, we, how should we come at this? Well, let's read our passage this morning and then I'll share a roadmap with you. Romans 7, let's pick it up in verse 19. It'll be on the screen for you and we'll go to uh, the first verse of chapter eight. The apostle Paul wrote this, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So if I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's where we're going to go this morning. First, the church contains unbelieving hypocrites. Second, the church contains Christian hypocrites. Third, the church isn't built upon hypocrites or morally upright people. It's built upon Jesus. So let's, let's start with the first. Now, there are actually four prominent interpretations of this passage in Romans 7 I just read, just to make it easy on a preacher, you know? Four prominent interpretations, but two dominant interpretations of this text. Here's the first. The first dominant interpretation of the passage in Romans 7 I just read is this. This passage refers to unbelievers. In Romans 6, we read this. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. I'll explain that in a second. But then in Romans 7, in verse 14, just before the text I read for us this morning, it says this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold as a slave to sin. So in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul has just written, Christians are delivered. They are slaves to Christ now. They have been delivered from slavery to sin. Non-believers, on the other hand, are slaves to sin. And then he carries on and keeps writing and Right there in Romans chapter seven, verse 14, it describes someone who is a slave to sin. Meaning naturally that then, this must be, is the interpretation, this must refer to the state of an unbeliever. And like I said in the outline, the first reason that judgmental, mean-spirited, inconsistent people, hypocritical people are in the church is because the church contains unbelieving hypocrites. And Jesus actually warned about this when he said in in Matthew 7, he preached at the latter part of the Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus taught that there would be false teachers in the world who lead people astray. And so Jesus here goes on to instruct us to evaluate the content and fruit of their ministries. But Jesus went further than that. 
Jesus said that there would also be false disciples in the world. He says later, Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, these are Jesus' words, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are difficult words to read. See, Christianity isn't the title of a group of morally good people who avoid cursing and only watch Christian movies and only listen to Christian music and who come to church on Sunday. Christianity isn't a term to describe good moral people. Christianity isn't the, type, isn't the title for a group of good moral people who know some stuff about Jesus. The book of James is a shocking book where James, the brother of Jesus, writes that even demons believe in God. They believe and they shudder. Meaning, mere intellectual assent about God, even about Jesus, doesn't save anyone. Jesus saves those who repent and believe in his name. It's a scary thought, a scary thought, but it's true. There are those who deceive others and themselves, but who actually don't know or act like Jesus at all. Right now, um, studies, polls are showing that Christianity is shrinking in North America. And it's, it's alarming to, um, to many people. Uh, not to me. See, see, what seems to be happening is that something called the mushy middle, the mushy middle is disappearing. That's all that's happening right now. And when that reference to the mushy middle is said, it's, it's talking about cultural Christianity. Christian in name and nothing else. They're not ticking the box anymore, essentially. So what's disappearing in the Christian landscape are actually those who claim to be morally upright but look, sound, act, and live no differently than anyone else in the world. James goes on to write that faith without works is dead, meaning authentic faith actually changes how disciples live. Their lives do look differently. So the first group of hypocrites we're talking about are those who aren't actually Christians, but who claim to be. Those who wear the title of Christian and are observed by, by others in broader society who assume that they're Christians, but who never actually try to learn from him or live out what he taught and take his teachings seriously. Here's the warning. Our confession must be coupled with God-honoring lives. In other words, the faith that saves is a faith that works. That would essentially be the words of James. Authentic faith, it works itself out in godliness. And where that hasn't happened because of inauthentic faith, it's rightly looked completely distasteful and hypocritical to the watching world. 
but there is a second uh, point here and, uh, that we need to look at, and, and, and I bring it up because it also is the second dominant interpretation of Romans chapter 7, um, where the belief is, the interpretation is, this isn't a reference to unbelievers, this is a reference to believers, to the, the practicalities of the life of the believer. So our second point here this morning is that the church contains Christian hypocrites. Our, win, our willful sinfulness, our lack of pursuit of holiness and purity actually stands in the way of the Christian faith for many people, doesn't it? The hypocrisy that we display hinders some from even wanting to approach Jesus. See, hypocrisy leads some people to reject Christianity and that should alarm us. We're called in 2 Corinthians 5 to be ambassadors for Christ and anytime our hypocrisy makes us bad ambassadors, that should grieve us. So I want, as part of, part of what I'm saying this morning, I want to call us to repentance for that. I want to call us to repentance for that. Donald Miller, in his great book, Blue Like Jazz, uh, talked about uh, one night uh, on the campus of his liberal college in Oregon, him and some friends, some Christian friends set up a confessional booth in the middle of the campus. And it was um, a lot of parties going on that weekend and, and people would be walking across, you know, the courtyard of, of the school and they planted this confessional booth right in the middle of it. So these people going from party to party, place to place and had a few drinks, would be walking through the courtyard and they'd see this confessional booth and it would make them chuckle and sometimes someone would hop in there and they'd actually even start to confess. But for Donald Miller and his friends, that wasn't the point. When someone would step into the confessional booth, Miller would actually confess to them the sins of the church and apologize for the pain it has caused. And it was actually through this humble repentance that Christianity began to gain credibility and a hearing on that campus. Because they were willing to State the obvious, we have been hypocritical and stood in the way of you meeting Jesus. Our actions, our words. Um, before we planted our Lake Arock campus, um, we were just doing some relational ministry out there and John Johnstone works with us a bit. Um, he's an indigenous brother in Christ and um, is our ind indigenous ministry director out there. And um, he was interacting with people on a couple of the reserves in the area. And there was a church that had shut down um, that had kind of slowly dwindled. And to be honest, it didn't have a great name in the community is something that we had come to hear and discover. And so part of replanting this campus was we renovated it, but we let it lay dormant for a while. And we prayed and we waited and we built up a, a base team 
of people to go from here and other campuses to plant it. But in the meantime, John would often interact with people that he would meet on the reserves. And he kept asking the same question. And I just think such a beautiful question. He would kind of point towards where the building in the community, the church building was. And he would point over there as he was talking to people. And he would say, do they have anything to apologize for? And time and time again, people would say, "Um, well, yeah, this, that, this. And John did such a good job of just genuinely, he wasn't there for it, but just apologize for it. We would get on our knees in that little chapel before we planted and, and, and repent of the hypocrisy of Christians. See, Mark 1 tells us that Jesus began his ministry by calling people to repent. And here's the thing. He was talking to religious people. See, when it comes to hypocrisy, this is where we need to start. This is where we need to start as followers of Jesus. We need to repent before God of our hypocrisy. And we actually need to look to people that maybe we work with, maybe family, friends, neighbors, and look them in the eyes and genuinely apologize for the hypocritical behavior that we have had all the while telling people that we follow Jesus. Um, I know that there are those of you in the room that this is, this is a major, if not the major doubt, hang up that you have with the Christian faith is you're looking out and you're being like, oh man, the hypocrisy. I wanna invite you to try something, if you would. It it takes a little bit of uh, sympathy on your part. (laughs) Is that when you, when there there are people in your life or when there are people who who claim, you know, to be following Jesus, who, who do something or say something that you deem hypocritical, here's a question I, I would invite you to ask. Rather than ask how moral and upright is this person, we should be asking, where did this person start? Would you just celebrate something with me this morning? I haven't flipped out at a mall kiosk in years. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Yeah. And I'm so glad. I still cringe when I walk by that kiosk. Oh, man. Oh, what an idiot. But I, I just believe that, like, I've grown a bit since then. The question isn't, they did something hypocritical, therefore Christianity isn't true. The question is, what were they like three years ago? Man, you think they're a hypocrite now. You should have seen them. A decade ago, oh my goodness. Because when we look with that view, you know what we often see? Somebody where the the redemption of Jesus Christ has taken a footing and taken hold and is doing a work. See, people often look in at the church and they're like, man, that guy's a hypocrite. Yeah, but he came to Christ three months ago. You should have seen him then. God's doing a work in him and it's gonna take time, but he is not the same guy. Jesus has got a hold of him. I I ask for that courtesy. I I know I'm asking a lot, but I ask for that courtesy 
Don't ask if they meet Christianity with perfection. Ask, where have they been? Where are they now? What's God been doing? Do I see any trajectory there? Do I see a change? I'm so grateful for the people in my life that see change in me. Matt, you acted differently in that situation than you would have a few years ago. I should hope so. I pray for that all the time. Henry Nouwen, the great Henry Nouwen, wrote, can we only speak when we are fully living what we are saying? If all our words had to cover all our actions, we would be doomed to permanent silence. Sometimes we're called to proclaim God's love even when we're not yet fully able to live it. Isn't that the tension? The church know this about ourselves. We don't always project this about ourselves, but we know this about ourselves. We're not perfect, we're messed up. And it can certainly look hypocritical from the outside, yeah, yeah. I wanna speak to to the Christians in the room who know that that, that many of your actions are hypocritical. Let's get back to this Romans text. See, when, when, when you study Romans 5 through 8, you see the flow of, of what Paul is, is stating there. The flow from justification by faith. I'll explain that in a second. The flow of justification by faith in Romans chapter 5 to glorification of the follower of Jesus in Romans chapter 8. Now, in chapter 6, it deals with, here's the theological word of the day, antinomianism. In chapter six, Paul's dealing with antinomianism, which is a fancy word to describe those who oppose and reject God's law. Paul is pushing back on those who do that in light of the gospel and saying, no, you're separating the law of God from the person of God. Love is what the law demands and the commands are what love fulfills. Antinomianism separates those things and says, ah, we've got grace. We don't, the law is now completely meaningless. And so he's doing that dance in chapter six and trying to bring understanding. And then in chapter seven, which we've been dealing with this morning, chapter seven deals with the purpose and limits of the law. The law cannot save, Jesus saves. But Jesus fulfilled the law and calls us to uphold the law. So where the struggle Paul describes is between himself as a new creation in Christ and his old sinful nature that still rears its ugly head. The struggle of chapter seven then, and this is where I I land on this text. The struggle of chapter seven then is what it means to be a Christian who is fully justified, Romans five, not yet glorified, Romans eight, but being sanctified. Justification, just so I can clarify terms, justification deals with the guilt of sin. Sanctification deals with the present help we need in fighting sin. And glorification deals with the ultimate defeat of sin. Justification is is about forgiveness, forgiven. You are justified. You are forgiven when you come to Christ. Glorification is ultimate deliverance. Jesus will come again and he will set everything right. And we will be made spotless and pure in terms of our actions. Sanctification, though, is present help. 
When I read the text, I'm sure everybody relates. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Later in verse 22, for I delight in the law of God. That seems to be the the heart of a believer. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This reflects, it's sometimes referred to as the already and not yet kind of movements of the Christian faith. The already aspect of salvation is that when you come to Christ, you have been saved. The not yet aspect is that believers will be saved ultimately for all eternity upon Christ's return. And Christians live in the tension between the already and not yet. And I think that's what's being explained in Romans chapter seven, where you resonate and go, yeah, I want to do it right. And then I fail, I fail. So here's my words to you, Christian. You can and should battle against sin and you can and you should experience victory. I guess a question for us is we as Christians have to look in and look at the uncomfortable reality of our hypocrisy is say, are you engaged in the battle? You can grow in holiness. You can be sanctified. Yes, I'm, I'm sinning, but man, you should have seen me five years ago. God has been doing a sanctifying work. And in growing in holiness, yes, you can become less, less hypocritical. Like I said, we're called to be ambassadors for Christ in the world, given the ministry of reconciliation. And so on the one hand, we acknowledge we're hypocrites who need Jesus. And on the other hand, we recognize that as followers of Jesus, we are in the midst of a transformation and we can shine like stars in this dark world. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, 20th century preacher from London, did a series of sermons on Romans chapter six and in it, he delivered this uh, illustration that I think is so helpful. He wrote, imagine a country in which one group of people has for centuries enslaved another group of people. So whenever a member of the enslaved group would meet a member of the oppressing group on the street, the oppressor could order the other person around. And if they didn't obey the member of the oppressing group, they could have them beaten or killed. They had the right and power to do it. But then a good king comes. He comes into power and decrees emancipation of all the slaves. And he puts soldiers and police officers and judges in place to ensure that his decree gets put in motion. And they are free. But is that all it really takes? He goes on and asks. Is that all it really takes? The reality is that whenever a member of the enslaved group who had been enslaved their whole lives from a group that had been enslaved for centuries, when they would encounter a member of the oppressing group, they would tremble and quake. And when a member of the oppressing group would still order around members of the enslaved group, they did it. The oppressing group didn't have the power to do that anymore. And if the formerly enslaved individuals stood up against it, the oppressors couldn't have done a thing. And yet, over and over and over again, the members of the enslaved group continued to act like slaves. Because even though their status had changed, they truly were free. 
they didn't always grasp it. They didn't always realize it and live according to it. They spent a good deal of their time as slaves, even though they had been set free. Every Christian in this room is in that condition. It's the only reason you do anything wrong. The only reason you still veer off course, why you can't break your habits. You have a real status change. It's not just symbolic, it really happened. And you have been given real power. Romans 8 goes on to tell you that the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and will give life to your mortal bodies, it promises. Christian, the power to fight sin dwells in you and you can win. So the former slave owner says from across the street, hey, get over here. And instinctively you stand at attention and start walking across the street because that's exactly what you used to do. But there should be a moment as you're crossing the street that you stop and say, wait a minute, you don't own me anymore. I have a new master and I can walk in his way. You have been justified and you will be glorified and you are being sanctified. Are you engaged in the battle? Are you walking by the spirit? Are you contending for the faith and drawing people to Jesus? We need to acknowledge our hypocrisy, yeah, because healing and witness can actually come from that and because it's just being honest. But you can actually grow and you can actually wage war to your sin and it's not a lost battle. Romans 8 promises that there will be victories. You, Christian, may become, should become less hypocritical, more like Jesus. Paul in verse 24 exclaims, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he's saying is, who will deliver me? Jesus. See, what both views of Romans 7 agree on, whether it's to unbelievers or to believers, what both views of Romans 7 agree on is that sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. And that Jesus is the answer to that problem. So finally, the church isn't built upon hypocrites or morally upright people. It's built upon Jesus. Celebrities, politicians, religious people, we're all hypocritical. But Jesus stands alone as the only fully righteous, unhypocritical person who's ever lived. So the invitation I'm trying to give is weigh Christianity not on its followers, but its leader. For the last number of years, singing competitions have been wildly popular, right? And some of those uh, shows have shown um, kind of worst auditions or worst performances, you know? And uh, oftentimes that's, that's the best part, right? But, but if you were to hear a tone-deaf guy try and belt out Aretha Franklin, it, it wouldn't be 
a, a reasonable solution to say, well, that was terrible. Evidently, Aretha Franklin isn't the queen of soul. Be like, no, you have to listen to Aretha. She is the queen of soul. Beyonce has something to say about that, but she still needs time, right? Aretha's the queen of soul. I feel in my life sometimes like I'm the tone-deaf singer. <laughs> and I hate to get in the way, I, but I know that I get in the way sometimes. But I just never want that to stop people from knowing he still is truly the king of kings. I'm just the tone-deaf guy. I'm sorry. I, Try not to get in the way, but you need, you need to hear the King of Kings. You need to meet the King of Kings. You need to know the King of Kings. There's not, nobody like him. Josh McDowell and Don Stewart wrote it this way. Christianity does not stand or fall on the way Christians have acted throughout history or are acting today. Christianity stands or falls on the person of Jesus, and Jesus was not a hypocrite. He lived consistently with what he taught and at the end of his life, he challenged those who had lived with him night and day for over three years to, the point, to point out any hypocrisy in him. His disciples were silent because there was none. Since Christianity depends on Jesus, it is incorrect to try to invalidate the Christian faith by pointing to horrible things done in the name of Christianity. They're saying a few things there. Here's the first thing. Whether or not Christianity is true does not depend on its adherence, how its adherents behave. This, of course, does not excuse hypocrisy in the church. I've spoken to that. But neither does it mean that hypocrisy is sufficient reason to dismiss Christianity. Second, Christ was not a hypocrite in any sense of the word. And often even critic, critics have to concede this point, exalting the high moral standards of Christ, even while not understanding or choosing to believe his larger claims. And third, this quote touches on hypocrisy on a large scale, such as the Crusades, which we'll get to in a few weeks when we look at the doubt, don't all the injustices in church history discredit Christianity? Again, this does not excuse hypocritical behavior, but separates it from the center of Christianity. The center of Christianity is Jesus and his claims, Jesus and his words, Jesus and his works. I guess the philosophical question, I know I've got a few of you in the room, the philosophical types. Accusations of hypocrisy assume that there are moral standards that hypocrites break. But why does that standard exist? Where does it actually come from? Who sets that standard? See, the same is often said of evil and suffering in the world, which we talked about last week. We want to put God on the hook for evil and suffering in the world. But the fact that we use such categories is actually, when you boil it down, more evidence for the existence of God than not. And so in terms of hypocrisy, rather than serve as an argument against faith in God, the objection to hypocrisy actually supports the reality of a transcendent moral being who stands over the fray. In the Christian faith, we refer to that person as Jesus. And so Matt Smethurst, as we close, put it this way. Abraham was a liar, Moses was a murderer, David was an adulterer, Peter was a denier, Thomas was a doubter, Lazarus was dead. Jesus saves. What's our part? What's my part? What's your part? Liar? Murderer, 
adulterer, denier, doubter, dead. What's Jesus' part? Savior, rescuer, hope and redeemer. Ah, my friends, I I look to Jesus. Jesus brings dead people to life. It's not those who screw up who are the point. Jesus is. It's not those that are brought back to life that are the point Jesus is. We talked about Lazarus last week. What's so fascinating is Jesus is like, Lazarus, come out. It says that that the dead man came out and then there's no more mention of Lazarus, just more mention of Jesus. Why? Lazarus isn't the point, Jesus is. He's the one who makes dead things live. And Jesus takes away the sins of those who sincerely repent. Jesus is the point of Christianity. I want to invite you to look to the leader of the church and the entire Christian faith, Jesus. The gospel, the good news, isn't about what we can do for God, but what God has done for us in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus. What a great Sunday to get to take communion together, hey? because we all have hypocritical behavior that we need to repent of. And I press that with you. I want to press that with you. I want us to be a more compelling Christian witness. God wants his spirit to move in you in such a mighty way that there is less hypocrisy in you so that you can be a more brilliant, shining light in the world. So that his sanctifying work, the work that the spirit does, in his word, in community, that that can take place in you. And so we should feel a heaviness, but man, I'm, my hypocritical behavior with my family, with, with my neighbors, with my friends, with, with these people I'm, I work with all the time. Yeah, we, we, we should feel that. But, but, so, so maybe that's just though an, an additional invitation though, because we're gonna come up and receive communion. Maybe just, just dwell on those things for a little bit and, and repent of them. But here's the beauty of the Lord's Supper. You get, to, you get to leave your spot and come forward and recognize that that guilt, that shame doesn't need to stay here. That was placed on the cross and Jesus died for it. So you, you leave free. You leave free. Reminded of the price Jesus paid so that you could be justified and sanctified and glorified. He's doing a work in you. So the invitation is, or a worship team will come up, we'll have communion servers at the front and in the corners of the balcony. If you profess faith in Jesus, Savior, Lord, Rescuer, Redeemer, say, I trust Jesus, even if you're placing that trust in him today for the first time, you get to come and receive. If, if you're considering Jesus, if you're skeptical of Jesus, no one's gonna think anything of it if you just hang back and observe but I just want to invite you into a time of repentance and then great gratitude and come and receive the free gift of grace in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we, we, we are so glad that Christianity doesn't hang on our behavior, but on Christ's. And it's Christ's behavior, it's Christ's work, it's Christ fulfilling the law, Christ's the only unhypocritical person ever who died for us. And in that place, as we believe in Jesus, his perfect record gets given to us, our sinfulness, our hypocrisy placed on him on the cross. He freely did that as a gift to save us. 
We just, we revel in that. That's the gospel. That's the truth. And Lord, I just pray that you would lead people to yourself. Thank you that we can sit in doubts, wrestle them, talk about them openly. Lord, I just want to keep shining a light on you. We want to look to you, Jesus. Thank you for all you've done. And now we want to come and receive from you in great gratitude that on the night you were betrayed, you took bread and said, this is my body given. You took a cup and you said, this is my blood shed. Believe in me. Take and eat. Take and drink. We do that. In Jesus' name, amen.